0: I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. And welcome back indeed. I am back in the saddle here for the first time in a few weeks. I'm back from a trip abroad. I hope that all of you listeners had a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and a very Happy New Year. We are ready to kick things off here in the year 2023. Figured I would first just kind of update you guys on what I was doing for these past three weeks or so that I've been away from the saddle, away from the recording studio. Well, I got engaged, so there's that. So congratulations to me, mazel tov to me, and my beautiful new fiance, Sheer. So we had a trip. I kind of described the contours of this trip for you a couple episodes ago. We were in the Middle East. We spent a good amount of time in Israel. My now fiance was born there, although she was raised here in Florida, which is where I live now, and I popped the question to her at the Kotel, or at least what Jews call the Kotel, what most of the Western world calls the Western Wall. That's kind of the... Icon of Jerusalem, so I did it from a balcony overlooking the western wall with the the temple mount right there, Har Habayit is, the, is what, the Jews, what the Jews call it, right there in the background. There was a very, very special moment. We had a very lovely engagement party that night. Actually, now that I think about it, at least one previous guest of this show, Yoram Hazoni, was actually there at the engagement party. So we, just, we, we just had a wonderful, wonderful time in Israel itself. Went down south to, to the Negev, which is the desert region of Israel, explored that a little more than I had ever done on my previous trips there. Stayed at this one incredible hotel called the Bereshit Hotel, which is located in a smaller town called Mitzpey Ramon, smack in the middle of the desert if you kind of go on Google Maps and look where this hotel is. What makes the hotel so cool is it is literally on the edge of a crater and i'm using the term crater loosely this is not a literal crater where like a meteor or an asteroid came crashing into earth it's an erosion kind of geological crater where there were seas there tens of thousands millions of years ago however long and it created this gargantuan like 35 to 40 kilometer long i think like six kilometer wide gaping gaping hole basically in the ground and this hotel is situated literally on the edge of this crater, just absolutely stunning. We, we, we did a jeep, to, jeep tour down there, kind of exploring the terrain, the wildlife, really, really, really beautiful stuff. Then we actually flew to the UAE. So we were able to explore both Dubai and Abu Dhabi, which is the slightly lesser known capital, of the UAE, and we were really blown away by the UAE. I have to say, we were there for for New Year's Eve, so we got a, a front row view of the Burj Khalifa, which is the world's tallest building, to rain in the fireworks, which itself is pretty wild, by the way. So what they do in Dubai is they shoot these fireworks off in numerous locations, most prominently from the Burj Khalifa itself, which is literally the world's tallest building. I don't know how they don't start fires, by the way. I assume I I obviously don't assume. I know that they know what they're doing there because they've been doing this for many years now. But wow, I mean, that was just absolutely wild. Dubai itself, really crazy. I, I, I Google this because I'm such a nerd when it comes to this stuff. I, I go down these Wikipedia rabbit holes all the time. So I was looking up the Wikipedia article for cities with the most skyscrapers defined as you know above 450 feet or whatever the relevant metric is. If I recall correctly, Dubai is number four in the world now for the most skyscrapers after Hong Kong, Shenzhen, also in China, and New York City, I believe, is number three. And then Dubai is fourth, which is just wild because I literally think they built their first skyscraper within the past 25 years or so, 30 years at the most. So what's happening in the UAE is really, really interesting. The UAE has has also emerged as kind of the, the face of the Abraham Accords peace deals with Israel. There have been other countries that have signed on to the Abraham Accords, of course, Bahrain and Morocco, most prominently Sudan to a slightly murkier and slightly lesser extent. And of course, uh, we all hope and pray that there will be more peace in the Middle East between Israel and her erstwhile Arab foes. But the UAE really has like emerged as the face of normalization with Israel. And it was just really, really cool to see that as well. I mean, to see kind of kosher restaurants, for example, in a, in an Islamic country where you see people kind of dressed in that very traditional you know, Arab attire, just the the whole thing was just very, very, very cool. And then we flew from Dubai to Egypt to round out our trip. We stayed there in Cairo. I, I'm kind of a lifelong ancient Egypt nerd. I vividly recall when I was in Miss Galenka's sixth grade class, doing a class project where I was kind of uh, drawing or sculpting or whatever we were doing to King Tut's face mask. So getting to see that that face mask, that sarcophagus in person was very cool. Seeing the pyramids itself was, you know, literally a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I I cannot say that Cairo and the Giza area in general is necessarily the nicest place I've ever been. Uh, On on the contrary, the air quality is horrific, and in many respects, the bombed-out quality of the buildings there made me think maybe I had taken a wrong turn and had gone to Damascus, Syria, or Baghdad, Iraq. Perhaps, but, but... No regrets whatsoever, because seeing the Nile River, seeing the pyramids, seeing King Tut's sarcophagus was just really, really, really cool. And then I got back last week. So now here we are back on the saddle. And, you know, by the time that I kind of got back here and started really kind of earnestly following current against or started earnestly following what was happening, All over again, we were actually already a few ballots in to this really remarkable contested speaker's election. And I'm talking here, of course, about Kevin McCarthy, who finally, finally, on the 15th ballot, emerged over this past weekend as the new U.S. Speaker of the House. It took him long enough. 15 ballots. I mean, that was the most ballots that it has taken for a U.S. House Speaker since 1859. Since 1859, since literally before the Civil War there. And if you look at the deal that ultimately emerged between Kevin McCarthy and his conservative detractors read by a merry band of happy conservative warriors, perhaps led above all by Chip Roy, the very astute and erudite congressman from Texas. The deal that emerged is a fantastic deal for conservatives. There is a huge return to regular order where less legislation is going to be kind of deemed in top-down fashion, just produced from the House. Uh, I, I, you know, the way that's worked in the House for many years now is that you kind of get these crisis points, whether it's a debt ceiling increase or, or some sort of kind of other kind of, you know, must fund pass legislation and omnibus, whatever. And these massive one to two trillion dollar deals get ridden in the dark in the middle of the night from the speaker's office and they get kind of foisted down the throats of these reluctant conservative legislators. So long story short, we're going to have a lot less of that. We're going to have a lot less of that because now we're going to have 12 individual appropriations bills. We're not going to have these grotesque, gargantuan $1.7 trillion omnibus bills. We're going to have key conservatives on the very influential House Rules Committee and various other very meaningful concessions that this group of conservatives was able to extract From the very swampy face of K Street Republicanism, which is the Speaker of the House now, Kevin McCarthy of California, doesn't necessarily say a whole lot of good things about Kevin McCarthy, by the way, that he was willing to basically give away the farm and effectively humiliate the power of the Speaker of the House just to kind of get that plate. It says a lot about Kevin McCarthy, nothing particularly good. One quick thing that I want to say here, and then we'll kind of take us into a commercial break where we will be joined shortly by the great Steve Cortez. Excited to have Steve on the program. But one final word that I want to say is that it was really galling. And again, I was in the UAE in Egypt when this fight started. I literally got back in the middle of last week when they were a few ballots in. But even given that, it was absolutely galling for me to see The sheer depth and breadth of the establishment-friendly, quote-unquote, conservative commentariat and pundit class that went to the mattresses for Kevin McCarthy from day one. The kind of folks who said, who are these traitors? Who are these rebels? What is the plan? Who are they going to suggest for Speaker of the House? Do they have a name? Well, I'll tell you exactly what the plan was, guys. The plan, and, you know, I'm thinking here about some major, major conservative figures, and sure, I will name some names. I'm thinking here about folks like Sean Hannity on Fox News, folks like Mark Levin, syndicated radio host. They went to the mattresses for Kevin McCarthy from day one. They utterly excoriated and dehumanized Chip Roy, Matt Gates, Andy Biggs, Scott Perry, all of them. All the folks who are ultimately able to extract these incredible concessions that have now made Kevin McCarthy one of the weakest speakers, if not the single weakest speaker in the history of the U.S. House of Representatives. And they have done so by rewarding conservatives on the Rules Committee, by now having separate appropriations packages. I mean, isn't this conservatism? So I guess my question, my, my, my question for those conservative commentators who since day one, from before the first ballot, went all out for Kevin McCarthy and started belittling his conservative detractors who were able to extract all of these wonderful concessions. My question is, do you support the concessions? Or do you oppose them? Because if you are going to be principled and intellectually consistent here, you probably shouldn't oppose the result. Alternatively, you could say mea culpa, my bad, but really kind of an eyes open moment. And I am not the only one who said this. I've seen any number of other folks. Eric Erickson, the radio host, has said much the same thing. It was really kind of an eye-opening week for those of us who pay close attention to the commentariat and the chattering class there. There were some people who I think came out of this looking very good. Some people in Congress, obviously, who came away looking very good. Chip Roy of Texas, perhaps chief among them. I think Matt Gates of Florida, I think his stock shot up as a result of this. Various other folks in that band of warriors as well. Scott Perry of Pennsylvania is another name that comes to mind there. But man, when it comes to the chattering class, there were some people that got this right, and there were a heck of a lot more people that got it wrong. So perhaps we will come back to this at a future episode. But for now, for now, well, let's take it to a quick commercial break. We are going to be joined shortly, as I said earlier, by Steve Cortez. Steve is a former advisor to former President Trump. He is as keen and sharp as they come. So stay with us. We'll be joined shortly by Steve Cortez. Welcome back. So as previously mentioned, just thrilled to join this week by someone who I've gotten to know over the past year or two and now consider it to be a friend. And really, I think one of the people in this broader constellation of right of center talking heads who has his finger truly on the pulse of the pulse. That is Steve Cortez. He's a former advisor for President Donald Trump. So Steve, my friend, thanks so much for joining us this week.
1: Hey, Josh, thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I I really don't say that lightly. I mean, I think of all the people that I've kind of gotten to know over the past two, three, four years or so, I I really do look to your content and your output as someone who just gets it. I mean, you know, this whole show that we've been doing now for almost the past year, in Newsweek, is really oriented for the new right. And, you know, you use the phrase patriotic populism. It's really kind of going for the same thing. So maybe that's maybe that's actually a good place to start, actually, because, you know, you really have used that exact phraseology, patriotic populism, or populist patriotism, Populist patriotism. What do you mean by that? Talk us through exactly what that is, and I guess how it's different from the conservatism that has predominated for the past two, three, four decades or so.
1: Sure. No. And listen. uh, And thank you for for the compliment. I I very much appreciate it. I hope that part of why uh, I I hope that I'm effective in this arena is uh, that I came to it as a second career. You know, I'm a middle aged guy who got into politics as a middle aged guy. I basically got in with Donald Trump. I had a career on Wall Street that got me into media, but just financial media. I wasn't talking politics. And when that orange guy came down the escalator, uh, he changed my mind on a lot of topics. I was always very politically involved, even though it wasn't my career. And he changed my mind on a lot of things. And to answer your question about patriarchal populism, I was frankly a pretty Wall Street establishment thinking Republican previously, previous to Donald Trump. Um, And I really had sort of this political Damascus Road conversion experience largely because of him and because of what he was doing in late 2015 and into early 2016, to the extent uh, that I actually left my gig then with Fox News, where I was supposed to be primarily talking about financial markets and decided to join his campaign for 2016, um, which then, once he won, particularly transformed my entire work life from a a Wall Street guy who did financial television to uh, to a full time political and media advocate and activist working for this populist agenda. And what I mean by populism is the the first arena where where Trump really opened my eyes and where I saw things a new way politically was regarding trade and China. Uh, I had previously been basically of the sort of GOP establishment party line that, quote, free trade was good for the country. And I say, quote, because What I then realized uh, was that the trade was really never free. It was always managed and often, almost always managed against the interests of American workers and in favor of multinational corporations in the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. The two were deeply interlinked. Um, And I had always been extremely skeptical even as a Wall Street guy of China, just because I thought it was such an incredibly corrupt model and I thought it was a very dangerous investment. I've been mostly right, certainly on that score, but I didn't connect that suspicion and that skepticism then to the domestic political angle here in the United States, the way Donald Trump did. Um, And once I was won over to the cause of populism, to believing that we need to, to pursue policies that will support a stable and prosperous middle class in this country, that the upper class largely takes care of itself, uh, that the lower income folks in America have largely been taken care of through government largesse, but that the middle class, that that a, a unfortunately shrinking middle class in America, a middle class that is lacking in political power, needs advocacy and that working class folks um, need policies uh, after decades of, of really um, destruction, for their prosperity, for their cohesion, uh, needs advocates in the political arena who are going to to fiercely fight for uh, for the prerogatives and rights of thriving middle class communities in the United States. I was really won over to that cause and to, to get specific about it because I'm really a big believer in not you know just engaging in platitudes, but getting specific. For example, It it dawned upon me, and it's I think dawned upon more and more Americans, that when I was young, I'm 50 years old, when I was young, grew up in a very middle-class suburb, working-class suburb of Chicago, the norm in my neighborhood, which was full of large families, was that a single-wage earner, usually the father, but that a single-wage earner uh, on a middle-class income was able to comfortably support an American family to live a relatively good middle-class life. Uh, That is simply not the case anymore in the 2020s in America. Hasn't been the case in the United States for many years. Why? I think largely because of policy decisions, really bad policy decisions, many of them related to globalism, to corporatism. um, and, And I view patriotic populism as the proper response, the proper pushback to try to regain as one, it's just one example, but it's a really important example in terms of a policy goal Uh, What are the kinds of policies we can pursue to allow an American family to again, thrive on one income? Not meaning that every family is going to choose that. I'm not saying that it means we have to uh, go back to Ozzy and Harry days and every family has to have uh, a stay at home mom and a working father. No, listen, Those choices are up to each individual family or up to each individual. But um, but to have the economic empowerment where they can make that choice um, and more and more polling shows us that they want to be able to make that choice, aren't able to, uh, given the the globalism that has dominated American policy for recent decades. So all of that uh, together convinced me to to not just join this fight. Uh, At the periphery, but really dive into it full time. And it's what I spend my professional life now doing in my writing and broadcasting uh, and activism on behalf of of candidates I believe in who espouse similar views.
0: So, lots to unpack there, a lot of good stuff to unpack there. One thing in particular that I'm really happy you mentioned was this emphasis on a single income family and kind of the impetus to, to a to trying to restore an economic system whereby it is possible for a middle class family to, to get by simply on one income, where, you know, traditionally speaking, the father has an income, the mother raises the children and so forth there. And, you know, I, I, on a kind of point of personal privilege, I think back just a little bit now. So, Steve, as you probably know, I'm very involved with kind of the national conservatism movement. And, you know, when I was at NatCon 2, so a little over a year ago now in Orlando, Florida, the Republicans for National Renewal Group, which is kind of a patriotic populism uh, affiliated group of sorts, was doing like a little Halloween night party there, and they asked me to speak. And, you know, it was kind of late at night. I might have had a couple of drinks and I didn't really plan my remarks. And I kind of just I kind of just ad libbed it, but I had this one line in there. What you just said about restoring this economic system, whereby it is possible for a middle class family to, to survive on a single income, and that more than any other kind of culture war invective that I was kind of spewing that night, that line had the biggest applause from the entire crowd. And I think back, you know, to Blake Masters in Arizona, who you know unfortunately lost his race, but he 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 had TV ads on this exact topic. There, right. he, he talked about this a lot. So let's flesh this out a little bit, actually, because you are a Wall Street guy. You're an you're an economic eye what what kind of public policies do we need to kind of put in place and also just from a cultural perspective so from, from a levers of policy and a cultural perspective to kind of restore this consensus that existed for a long time where the median middle class family could survive on a single income
1: Right. Well, listen. It's it's a great question. And on the on the policy side, on the economic side, first, to me, the most important aspect of this, you know, I, I mentioned before, China, China has engaged, and other countries in the world, but China most specifically has engaged in predatory trade abuse of the United States. And what I mean by that is that it's not as though China beats the United States in sort of a fair competitive landscape economically, and they're just better, they're just more productive. Um, that's not the case at all. No, China, first of all. Wholesale steals the intellectual property of the United States. So it does not invent, uh, it is not creative, it, it copies and pastes. Uh, when I say copy, though, too, I should say steal. It steals and pastes largely the processes of the United States. It then is able to uh, implement those processes, particularly in the realm of manufacturing, via either actual slave labor or quasi slave labor. Um, and no American company, no American workforce can effectively compete against that kind of system, against that kind of predatory trade practice. And so uh, given that you know, complete lack of fairness or reciprocity in our trade relationship with China, to me, the most effective means to getting middle-class wages rising again and rising to the level where they can comfortably support uh, a middle American family, a family of four you know, particularly, Um, to me is to end the trade abuses of China. Now, how do we do that? Well, number one, I think we need to, and this is a much bigger process than something that can be done in just a few months, this is going to take years and unfortunately probably even decades, we need to decouple ourselves from China because we are so totally dependent upon China for sourcing so many of the goods and services that we need to survive as a society. And I don't mean just the simple things, I mean some of the really critical things like pharmaceuticals, for example. So that process needs to happen, but how, you know, how, do we, how does it happen? How do we make it? Well, I think it's a combination of carrot and stick. On the carrot side, uh, I do believe that we need to make the United States as, uh, as hospitable a place to, to all kinds of production and all kinds of business as possible. Part of that, for example, is energy policy. We had this under President Trump. The first three years of his administration before the Chinese Communist Party virus hit the United States, low energy prices were a critical component of a manufacturing renaissance, which unfolded in the United States. That was unfortunately totally interrupted by the CCP virus, but the trends were really pretty magnificent. And 2019 was, by many uh, respects, the best year for American workers in all of American history by the numbers and that's not you know my opinion i mean if you look at the actual numbers in terms of wage gains particularly wage gains of those who had been previously left behind blue-collar workers um they were really just stellar you know record setting in 2019 a big component of that is energy so i think part of it is make this the best possible environment uh to make things uh to to produce goods and services in the united states but then secondly if that's not enough i think there has to be the stick of the carrot and stick component. And the stick part has to be, I think, pretty punitive tariffs. We need to uh, both punish companies that are going offshore, that are taking American jobs offshore, punish them financially. For example, right now, if an American company offshores, and if it, if it makes money in its offshore operations, even though they're sending the goods and services back to the United States, if they keep those, uh, those profits overseas and overseas accounts, they are not taxed. Uh, by the United States. Well, I believe they should be taxed. I think we should globally tax those operations. And if anything, tax them even more harshly than you would tax them if it were a domestic operation, you know, again, to to punish that move of moving them overseas. And then in terms of, of foreign goods coming into the United States, I'm absolutely a believer in, in tariffs. And, you know, protectionism has been a bad word in Republican circles for quite a long time. I don't believe that it should be. I think that we should actually welcome protectionism. It is a good thing to protect our country. It's a good thing to protect our borders uh, from, from unwanted, uninvited, unvetted trespassers, uh, which we have of course a massive uh, crisis at our border in, in that regard. It's also a good thing to protect American industries from unfair and predatory practices. So on the economic side, I think most of it flows from trade. If we, because most of the damage done to American working class folks and, and, and to the to the labor market of the United States. Most of that damage has been via unfair, unreciprocal trade practices. So I think that's a key component. On the cultural side, I, I will say too, and I think this is also super important. Uh, one of the things that has really held back um, American families if they're not of significant means is the fact that our public school system, largely the government school monopoly in many parts of the country, is just an absolute failure, right? And not only is it not preparing kids in um, sort of the three R's of reading, writing, and arithmetic. Uh, but it is also unfortunately infusing in them an indoctrination, which is largely antithetical to any sort of traditional belief, to any sort of patriotic belief in America. So, you know, on, on two levels, the government monopoly school system is failing. And it, it is both indoctrinating on the one hand with really, you know, toxic cultural um, crap. And on the other hand, it is failing to prepare kids, particularly in, in an information digital age. To be uh, to be competitive in in the economy we we face right now, so I also think another component toward freeing families and and allowing fl- families to flourish and particularly flourish on a single income um, is also school choice. And I'm a, a big believer in vouchers and in allowing uh, the the parents to make decisions on where their kids attend school regardless of financial constraints and to fund students and families rather than funding systems. I think that would also be part of encouraging families to have more children, uh, to, to take the leap of saying, okay, we can survive, we can do this on one income because even if my public school is not good, I know I have an option that is affordable uh, to some of the private schools. So I think, you know, on many fronts, there are are policy changes that can be made in this country. And Blake Masters was great at talking about this. He came close, unfortunately, didn't quite win. Um, uh, But J.D. Vance did win and did also talk about these, maybe not quite as much as Blake Masters, but talked about these issues quite a lot in terms of empowering families. So I think this is a movement that is burgeoning, a movement that is starting. Uh, Katie Britt is another new U.S. Senator, somebody who I worked for, advocated for in Alabama. She is uh, the only mother with school age children now in the United States Senate. She's one of the youngest members of the Senate, too. I think she's second youngest only to Vance, as a matter of fact. I believe he's 38 and she's 40. Um, she is a young mother who is also very focused on these kinds of issues of empowering families and being an advocate not just for the state of Alabama, but for parents nationwide. So I think it's starting. It's a really young movement, but you know, th- this is how movements get going, right? We have to have sort of the intellectuals uh, begin to make the case. Then we get the political uh, leadership to start following them and, and making the case to voters. And then we win over voters uh, over time. And um, I'll tell you one other aspect, and this is obviously much more controversial, and and I am an outlier on this, but one more aspect I think to raising wages and to, to getting to this goal of, of, single, uh, of single income families again, to me is also immigration restraint. Not only do I believe we need to stop illegal migration to this country, which is an absolute priority. It's an imperative for this country. I also happen to believe that even legal immigration is not being done very well and is, is very much depressing and diluting the wages of regular working class folks in the United States. So in an era, unfortunately, under Joe Biden, where we now have 20 straight months of declining real wages, meaning incomes adjusted for inflation, that's an all-time record, by the way, the worst in all of American history. In an era like that, uh, not only do we need to stop illegal migration, I'm of the belief, and again, I realize I'm an outlier here, but I'm of the belief that we even need to either curtail or even temporarily eliminate legal migration into this country so that we can strengthen American families, strengthen American incomes, and again, work toward what I view as kind of a a holy grail goal of getting back to a place where we were previously when I think we were a better society in many ways and families could thrive on a single income if that's their choice.
0: Well, I don't think you're that much of an outlier, to be honest with you. I mean, maybe an outlier within kind of the broader kind of elected official constellation. But I mean, certainly you and I are very much on the same page when it comes to legal immigration, which, you know, admittedly has been a bit of a third rail topic right, in, in Republican circles for years and years now. But, you know, I think about Oren Cass, who's a think tanker at American Compass. He has written time and time again. I mean, you know, you, Steve, you have your chalkboard. This is, I, I'm an, I was an economics major in college. I went back to my undergraduate institution, Duke, a few months ago to give an econ 101 guest lecture. This is the most rudimentary, supply and demand labor curve we're talking about here. I mean, workers, wages, I mean, this is about as econ 101, you know, straightforward as it gets when it comes to immigration and wages and all of that. So, you know, I have publicly called for an immigration moratorium, like a full moratorium, at least in the short term, not necessarily kind of a long term permanent policy. So, you know, you and I very much are on the same page there. Let's take it to a quick commercial break here. I want to come back on the other side, pick up on the tariffs point, because there's a lot more I want to unpack there, actually, and I think you're the right guy to unpack it with. So stay with us. We've got Steve Cortez on this week. Stay with Explore more stories like Alex's at Meta.com slash Metaverse Impact. So, Another third rail that you mentioned there, but it really should not be a third rail is this question that we 've come back to a couple of times already, which is the question of tariffs and I have to say the notion that tariffs and trade policy in general or you know that much excoriated word protectionism, the idea that any of this should be a third rail within conservative or capital or republican circles is Utterly baffling. So prior to the uh, prior to what was it the Sixteenth Amendment that ratified an, a, a national income tax? Prior to that, the United States federal government's primary means of raising revenue was a tariff. And you know, holding aside even from a U.S. government perspective, the Republican Party itself actually was the party of tariffs, going back all the way to the nineteenth century. So Abraham Lincoln, you know, I was born on his birthday. He's my favorite figure in American history. Abraham Lincoln famously said, he, he, "Abraham Lincoln's boyhood political hero." was Henry Clay of Kentucky. And he very much modeled his politics after Henry Clay. And he famously said... Uh, with, with a citation Henry Clay, he said, I'm paraphrasing here, he said, quote, my politics are slow and sweet like the old woman's dance. Give me internal improvements, a national bank, and a protective tariff. And that three-headed policy stool right there from Alexander Hamilton through Henry Clay through Abraham Lincoln was known as the American system in contrast to the British system which was actually predicated upon free trade absolutism. The American mercantilism of building up industry is partially what gave the United States all of its kind of industrial and subsequently military might. So I'm totally baffled that this is a third rail topic, but you're right that that it just is the case right now. And, you know, there are folks, like you said, like J.D. Vance, Katie Britt, who you know a little better than I am. I'm very excited to see what she can do here. So talk to me a little bit more about kind of this notion of, polit- of rethinking political economy as a third rail, because when I kind of get into the room with all these conservatives there, they're generally OK with my culture war invective. But when I try to touch anything remotely pertaining right. to, to, to like tinkering with the neoliberal economics, they're like, oh, my God, what are you doing there? So like, do you get the right. same reaction, basically?
1: Yes. Yes. No, I certainly do. And by the way, I understand it because again, I, you know, I'm a convert to this cause politically. Uh, I used to be of that mindset, right? That free trade was sort of a good in and of itself. And again, I want to put free trade trade in quotations there because it really, it never was free, right? right. It's, it's, it's always managed. I mean, this idea of sort of laissez-faire free trade is an absurdity that only exists in academia, didn't exist in reality in the United States. Um, but the reality is even free trade as sort of described. Um, by the corporatist wing of the Republican Party, and frankly, you know, the Democratic Party, which, of course, is now part and parcel of big business in this country, more so even, you know, than the Republican Party ever was previously. Um, here's the here's, I think, the crux of it, if we really want to, and I'm trying to be honest with, you know, my political opponents on this issue. Um, it's a matter of should the focus be on growing top line GDP Or should it be on the diffusion of economic power, meaning having an extremely prosperous middle class and having a prosperity uh, that is broad throughout the society? Okay, and I know I'm using some terms there that people might accuse me of being Marxist. I'm not saying by distribution. I'm saying by policy choices that allow people to succeed on their own. Right. Uh, We don't have that largely in America right now. What I mean by that is free trade as constructed from sort of the 1980s until relatively recently, until basically Trump. Um, free trade was very effective at growing top line GDP. And if you view the United States as simply a company and all you want to do is grow top line GDP, okay, uh, you know that that is effective, all right? But does it make for a great country? Does it make for a just and prosperous society? Does it make for happiness? Uh, does it make for political stability? I would argue to all of the questions, no, 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 you know, all the way down the line. Hence, the populist movement. I mean, hence the movement of the deplorables and the Tea Party, uh, you know, that really morphed into the Make America Great Again movement, you know, all of this. I, I think largely there are many factors to it, and there certainly are cultural issues as well. But on the uh, political side, I think primarily it is an economic movement. and It is a revolt against that economic disenfranchisement which free trade um, really inflicted upon middle-class Americans in the pursuit of top-line GDP growth. Now, my argument would be we can still grow top-line GDP, and GDP will absolutely prosper and do well, but that shouldn't be the North Star. What we should be chasing after instead, what our policy should be promoting, um, is the ability of broad American success in the middle class, across communities, across families, and to me, um, predatory trade practices from foreign nations, particularly China but from any foreign nation, um, while at micro GDP in, the, in particularly in the short term, um, it's incredibly destructive to the country, to our happiness, to our broader prosperity. Um, and that th- our, our policy aims, our policy gaze should be toward uh, toward that goal rather than top line GDP. But look we have work to do here, clearly right. I mean yeah we're facing you know decades of momentum on the other side and uh, there is still you know very powerful interest particularly among the donor class particularly among legacy elected office holders Uh, but this is also part you know josh i would argue this is part of what's exciting right to be part of a political movement that's trying to do something considered vanguard and and politically kind of dangerous right you know let's uh, it's exciting to be part of that and i think ultimately it's going to be great for the country and i hope it's going to be a legacy that people like you and i you know someday are talked about as being at the forefront of
0: no i couldn't agree with you more it's just it's just funny to me because whenever i go to these conferences or i have like informal conversations with conservative friends I, you know, I say something about, like, even, like, immigration moratorium or if I call for a ban on the transgender stuff, whatever. I mean, like, any kind of cultural-adjacent stuff I can say is palatable to most right of center people. And then, like, you start talking about, like, labor unions or collective bargaining or, you know, dare I say, maybe even possibly considering, you know, indexing the minimum wage to inflation. Some like, some like the, like the most marginal of tinkering along the political economy, public policy levers. And, you know, it's like, it's like World War III has broken out. But I agree with you. I mean, I think that you and I, I would like to think that you and I and our like minded colleagues are on the vanguard of this. That's certainly been a late motif of the show since the day this show launched and we're going to continue to hammer this topic. One other topic, though, kind of related to kind of this broader post 2016 Kind of rethinking of what the Republican Party and the conservative movement stands for is, of course, also foreign policy. It was a major theme of Trump's 2016 campaign. And, you know, I'm talking here specifically about Ukraine, which is a topic that I think you and I have both been very outspoken on. And uh, by a sheer numbers game, I, I'm not sure that our vantage point has achieved majority status within kind of the Republican coalition or the conservative movement in general here. So I, I guess my, my my two-prong question to you is, first, why don't you just briefly talk about what, what your position actually is on the Ukraine conflict at this juncture in time, now coming up on 11 months or however crazy long into this conflict that we are. And second, why do you think that your perspective and my perspective has not to date, kind of achieved majority status within kind of the broader conservative constellation?
1: Sure. Well, first, you know, my, my thesis on Ukraine really is that this is a regional struggle between Russia and Ukraine that has existed basically since time immemorial, Um, you know, certainly for many, many decades, probably quite a bit longer than that, if we really go back in history. It is a regional struggle over a borderline that has been movable, um, you know, again, for at least decades, and which frankly, thankfully, matters very little to the United States, uh, matters little to our strategic or economic interests in the world. Um, and it is my view that the United States and that one of the great lessons of the America First movement and, it, and its, it's uh, rise to power, frankly, in, in the United States, which is, I think, still in its very early days, is that the previous globalist uh, view of foreign policy, viewing the world as a chessboard to be managed using uh, American taxpayers' pocketbooks and using the sons and daughters of, uh, of um, Americans, particularly middle Americans, um, as the foot soldiers to engage in endless wars and interventions and war fighting all over the world has been simply disastrous for this country. It's been disastrous financially, it's been disastrous from a human perspective. You know, In the wars on terror, according to Brown University, we have lost in total over 7,000 Americans in uniform, more than that number in terms of contractors, they think roughly around 8,000 US contractors killed Since uh, 9-11, veteran suicides, 30,000 veteran suicides. Now, not every one of those is related to deployment, but certainly a significant portion of them are. Trillions of dollars in spending. So the toll has been immense. The gains to the United States, I would argue, have been minuscule to non-existent, particularly when it comes to a two-decade-long occupation, for example, of Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Uh, And so I just take an incredibly different view of American foreign policy, one of realism and restraint, and that America should only be intervening when our direct vital US national interests are at stake Um, and not some fanciful notion about supporting democracy. Uh, That's an absurdity or the notion that we need to protect Europe instead of Europe protecting Europe. I actually also think it's a really ridiculous leap of faith to presuppose that Putin is in any way capable of marching across Ukraine and then waging war, sort of uh, Hitler style against the entirety of the European continent. I just think that's an absurdity, but even if it were true, uh, the nations of Europe, largely thanks to the United States, are strong, stable, wealthy democracies who should be fully capable uh, of mounting their own defense against any sort of threat of that magnitude. Again, I don't think the threat is even there. But if we, for the sake of argument, were to grant that it is, uh, this is the job of Italy and Germany and France and the UK, not the United States. So um, I think that this has been um, a a war of intervention and really a proxy war with the United with uh, the uh, with Russia by the United States that is incredibly dangerous. It has already been incredibly costly to put that cost. In context, you know, we have either spent or are pledged to spend now over $100 billion total. That is larger than the entire defense budget of Russia. I mean, think about that. So, the country that is at war, that is engaging in a totally unjust war, by the way, not in any way defending Putin, but the, the country that is engaged in, in a war of invasion is itself, in its totality uh, on its defense budget, spending less than the United States is spending for a fight that is 5,000 miles away. And I have yet to hear anyone in the establishment, whether Republican or Democrat, make a compelling case, you know, other than platitudes like supporting democracy, uh, make a compelling, tangible case why this matters to the United States and why it is worth the money we're spending and the massive risks that we are taking in engaging in a proxy war with the second most powerful nuclear force on the planet. I mean, to me, talk about like asymmetry here, the risk reward calculus makes zero sense to me. I've said so from the very beginning, if the United States is involved at all, I think it should be pressuring both sides toward a diplomatic solution, which I think would actually be very reachable if we stopped financing this war, and if we stopped escalating it. I mean, that's also the sad reality. I think the Ukrainians would be far better off. Ironically, even though we're supposedly supporting Ukraine, the Ukrainian citizens, not, not the oligarchs and Zelensky, but the citizens. I think would be far better off if the United States stopped financing the Ukrainian side of the war and instead insisted on negotiations. You know, listen, if Donald Trump, master negotiator, I firmly believe this and I mean, I'm being sort of funny, but not. If we put him in a room with the Ukrainians and the Russians, I think we'd have an agreement in a day. I mean, I truly do. I think he could could pull that off um, and, and should, for that matter. It would, it would be amazing for them, amazing for us.
0: Well, if you go way back to late February, I have written a number of columns on this by now, but the very first column I wrote, I remember where I wrote it, I was in a hotel in Phoenix, Arizona, and the, and the, the, the column was uh, i'm paraphrasing the title it was like quote of course vladimir putin invaded ukraine under joe biden because vladimir putin loves to invade ukraine under democrats he did so within crimea right. in 2014 he did so in the donbass in, in 2022 surprise surprise both under democratic presidents there um no but look I, I agree with everything you said obviously i guess i would just add two quick points one thing that i think is more broadly going on in the russia ukraine conflict I call it like the World War IIization of foreign policy, where I think Americans, because our educational curriculum is so heavy on World War II history, which which is perfectly fine to be clear. World War II was a, a a horrific conflict. I mean, probably the worst conflict the world has ever seen. But because we are so acculturated to to viewing wars through that prism, we kind of tend to view all conflicts through that paradigm. Where on the one hand, you have the absolute manifestation of all-out absolutist Nazi evil. And on the other hand, you have truth, justice, and the American way. And this is obviously an incredibly oversimplified. Not every foreign policy conflict in the world is all-out evil versus all-out good. I mean, I think back to the 2013 Syrian civil war when the, uh, Obama was, was uh, debating whether to go in. You had Assad in one hand. You had these al-Qaeda-backed Islamist insurgents on the other. And Sarah Palin you know, qu- quite famously said, uh, let Allah sort it out which she got a lot of crap for from the foreign policy establishment. But you know what? I think she was kind of right. I think there's actually a lot mm-hmm. of truth embedded in that sentiment there. So, no, so, so you and I are very much on the same page there. And I think I'm, we're slowly, slowly starting to see the foreign policy tides shifting, much like we're slowly starting to see the political economy tides shifting. You know, if you go back to May, the Heritage Foundation under the new president, Kevin Roberts, actually opposed a massive 40 to $50 billion Ukraine aid package back in May there. So I think, you know, we're seeing, I think some kind of, you know, formally kind of, you know, uh, uniparty, neoliberal kind of brainworms institutions that are, that are really kind of starting to get it in real time. I guess we'll see in 2023 just how much that continues to unfold there. Steve, one other topic, and I guess let's get you out of here on this note that I would be remiss if I didn't get your thoughts on is... You know, I, I think a lot of us in kind of the right of center talking headspace are still trying to figure out what exactly the hell happened in the 2022 midterm elections. And, you know, we, I've had multiple episodes of this show on that. But I guess let's kind of get your perspective on what happened, why the Republican Party failed to kind of achieve what I think a lot of folks had suggested might be this all encompassing universal red wave. And the second prong of that question would be, where do you think that position, where do you think that election positions the patriotic populism movement?
1: Sure. Um, Yes, listen, the, uh, you know, regarding the election results, you know, it's, to me, it's fascinating to study them because... Obviously, we did not get the results we wanted in terms of the pickups of seats. And that's all that matters in the end, right, is, you know, is the final score on the scoreboard. It's great that we got the House. I'm optimistic that we're going to make some great gains there. It's terrible that not only did we not get the Senate, but actually went backwards. So why did that happen? Well, if we look at the House side, Republicans actually did win the popular vote, uh, which is a rarity. Right. So on a national level, did well but then didn't do well in the at the granular level of winning enough seats, you know, enough seats again to get the majority, but nothing like we were hoping for and anticipating. And I think there's a couple of aspects to that. One which we really can't control is there was uh, there's an enormous movement in this country, you know, a great sorting of people who are moving for ideological, cultural and political reasons. I happen to be one of them. I lived my entire life in Chicago, raised my family in Chicago as a very conservative Christian, you know, rarity, really, frankly, in the city of Chicago. I now live in Tennessee. Many people have done, have made similar kinds of moves from New York to Florida, Chicago to Tennessee, uh, you know, California into Arizona and so forth. So that is part of it is that the red areas got redder. So on a national basis, the voting actually looks okay, but then not when you get down to uh, the granular level. There's not a whole lot we can do about that. But the bigger issue, which we can take action on, The much bigger issue is, and and I'll consider myself as guilty as any strategist out there of not paying enough attention to this ahead of time, um, is that we relied too much in 2022 on the previous Republican calculus of let's convince people of the righteousness of our cause, of the failings of the opposition, particularly Biden as it relates to the economy, and then basically trust them to get to the polls and vote accordingly. Um, That model had worked for basically all of American history, But in an era of ballot harvesting, in an era of extremely aggressive early voting and mail-in voting, mass mail-in voting, by the way, I believe in none of that. I don't think it should exist. But the point is, it does. Okay, We have to play the game by the rules of the game as it exists presently. And in places where we cannot change those rules, um, we we need to adjust and we need to become as much about ballot collection as we are about winning over hearts and minds. And again, I'll take some personal um, uh, blame for that. And I think a lot of us missed the degree to which the Democrats would outwork us on the ballot collection and the procedural aspects um, rather than just the the, the policy um, aspects and the persuasion aspects of it. So lesson learned. Can't let that happen again in 2024, 2026. And again, let me say this because I don't want to sound like I'm okay with those, uh, those procedures. In the states where we can change things, we need to change. Right. I uh, firmly believe that we should return to an election day, that there should be ID required, of course, to vote. I believe we should take te- technology out. This is a place where technology is not helpful. Back to paper ballots. Um, uh, get rid of mass mail in voting. But the point is, in many, many states of this country, that is simply going to be the reality for the foreseeable future. We need to adjust our tactics accordingly. And I think that was a hard lesson that we learned from 2024. Oh, excuse me, 22.
0: Yeah, I I guess I would summarize it as kind of the walk and chew gum approach to fighting elections. I mean, we can do two things at the same time. I mean, where Republicans hold both state uh, legislative chambers, both the both the state house and state senate, and the governor's mansion, they can and should work to kind of modify and ultimately curtail some of these very lax voting procedures, but. In the states where this exists, we've got to get out there. Actually, you know, California is actually an interesting example. I think the California GOP, in Orange County in particular, they actually were able to kind of mobilize a lot of voters and kind of using this, you know, ballot harvesting. And you and I agree that ballot harvesting is awful and should be illegal everywhere. But the fact is, unfortunately, it does exist. And we just really, like you said, have to use it where it does exist. Um, Steve, unfortunately, we're out of time now. would love to have you on again soon, though. We could I wrap for hours and hours and hours. So um, why don't you tell the listeners of the show where they can find you?
1: Yeah, you bet, Josh. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, thrilled to have written articles recently in Newsweek, and will hopefully continue to do that to place my op-eds there. It's a, it's a fantastic platform. It's getting better all the time. So please read my articles there. Find me on Twitter. I'm at Cortez Steve, Cortez with an S. Um, and I'm also on Getter. Very simple there. I'm just at Steve.
0: Steve Cortez, my friend, thanks so much for joining us.
1: You bet. Thank you, Josh.
0: Thanks again to Steve Cortez for joining us. I really was not trying to butter Steve's ego when he came on the program by talking about the fact that he has his thumb on the pulse of all this broader right-of-center rethinking. I really do think he does. And you heard Steve mention J.D. Vance, who's a a mutual friend of Steve's and my. There really is starting to emerge, despite the 2022 midterm election setback that Steve and I just discussed towards the end of the show. There is starting to emerge a concerted crop of legislators who I think are starting to get it when it comes to the need to rethink some of these outmoded platitudes when it comes to economic policy, trade policy, immigration policy, perhaps in particular there. J.D. Vance, now that he is Senator J.D. Vance, almost hard to believe, but it's freaking awesome. And uh, he is a United States Senator. He has, of course, Josh Hawley, his colleague from Missouri, who has been sounding many of the same themes from the past few years. So you really are starting to see a, what Steve might call, I guess, a patriotic populist caucus, what some folks might refer to as kind of an America First caucus. You really are starting to see this emergence. They obviously could use some fellow recruits. Blake Masters would have been one such recruit, perhaps Adam Laxalt in, in, in Nevada. But obviously, the... Right of Center, Rethink Lives to Fight Another Day, and of course, the broader Right of Center, Rethink, and kind of the push for the new right, national conservatism, national populism, which we talked about with previous guest Ryan Gerdusky, that is the theme. That is the theme of all themes of this show, which we are coming up on the one-year anniversary of. Hard to believe, guys, but we are coming up very, very soon on the one-year anniversary of The Josh Hammer Show. And I'd like to take this opportunity to remind you that if you are not already doing so, please go ahead and click the subscribe button. That is how the algorithms work. We need you to actually formally subscribe to the show. Please go ahead and rate the show. Five-star ratings are best of course. And please go ahead also and leave us an actual comment. Again, this is just how the algorithms work, guys. So subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, you name it, it is going to be there. And thanks again for listening to the program. Hope you enjoyed this episode with Steve Cortez, and we will see you next week.